Welcome to the Los Angeles Wave podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be on. Thank you so much. With uh, 22 days left, a lot yeah. to reflect, and 20, almost 22 years of service. It's a good moment, good inflection point. We're really excited to have you here because we're hoping to open this up to more community leaders and engagement towards educating the public because we think we have kind of an anti-establishment audience. Yeah. And so we're hoping that you can sort of elucidate what it's like to be mayor Absolutely. and uh, what you do day to day. I love that. I think that so much people forget in a democracy is learning how it actually works. We all think we know how it works from the outside in. Hope to be able to share some inside out information to empower people, educate people, and maybe even inspire people. So on a material level, what, like, what have you been doing day to day in these past 10 years? Like, how would you, you know, describe that? If, if I was an alien who had yeah. no idea what a city was or government generally, you yeah. know, literally, what do you do? So the mayor is, according to our city charter, which is like our constitution for the city, is the CEO, the chief executive officer of the city. So, you know, you have to be everything from the leader, the spokesperson, the main policy uh, advisor. So you come up with the policies that will change people's lives. But the biggest part of what you do is you run 41 different departments, the Port of Los Angeles, the airport, Department of Water and Power fire department, police department, libraries, rec and parks. I mean, straight through, there's 41 huge um, departments that do everything from make sure your toilet flushes and your trash gets picked up to that your kids have a place to play and books to read. Um, we don't run the schools. We don't run healthcare. We don't run you know, a lot of things that people think we run. But at the end of the day, a mayor shows up and has to do a little bit of everything, has to make sure there's good people running these departments, has to deal with tragic situations, an earthquake, a shooting, a, a pandemic, things we don't expect to happen, and also has to give some guidance of this is where the city should go and listen to the city, try to travel the city, touch the city, inspire the city, mourn with the city. So you're kind of like this combination of lead salesperson, lead communicator, portfolio manager, and CEO all at the same time. So you have a lot of people report to you and you spend some time in meetings, some time reading documents. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how would you, you know, say, what yeah. percentage of your time is devoted to sort of physical activities? Such a good question, because when I came here, I quickly realized that I could spend all day long, every day, just getting briefed. In other words, think about it, 41 departments, the head of the airports wants to let you know this is what's going on and we need to build a new terminal and the traffic sucks there. We need your help. And it's been we've been in a lawsuit with neighbors for 20 years. Help us. Uh, then there's a firefighter who like over the weekend, we had a firefighter who got second degree burns fighting a fire uh, in an industrial warehouse. Um, you want to check in on the fire department, make sure that they're doing OK. Somebody else is telling you about policies to get through the drought. And you could spend all day long just sitting in a chair having people give you reports, sending you reports, or talking to you. And I realized that's a really critical part of the job, but there's no way to know everything. You've got to trust that other people know it and are going to make those decisions. So I spent about a quarter, quarter, quarter of my time when, when it's ideal, a quarter being briefed, a quarter reflecting and coming up with ideas and talking to people and thinking through, looking at what other cities have done, how do we deal with homelessness, how do we deal with climate, you know, proactive thought. A quarter of the time checking in on people. Because relationships and touching people are so important. This Chamber of Commerce, this Civil Rights Group, this Neighborhood Association. Hey, we've never heard from you, Mayor. And you don't realize how big 4 million people is until you're in charge of 4 million people, let alone kind of the most influential political person in a 10 million person county. So you've got to do that. And then I say the last quarter is trying to just recharge. You know, whether that's hitting the piano for me and playing some jazz or whether it's, um, you know, 
checking with my family. You cannot work 100% of the time. You have to remain a human being because I think people want to make sure you're not just the mayor, you're an Angelino. So I experience the same problems or joys at a park. Um, when I see somebody in a tent down on my block, I have to problem solve that just like a regular Angelino would. So I make sure that I'm really rooted in not just spending my time at City Hall. So I'm probably here maybe a third of the time, max, and I'm out there in the streets the other two thirds. And what would you say your relationship with the city council is like for people that don't know, how does that relationship work? You know, because they obviously have a lot of power over their districts. So what would you say your day to day with them or week to week would be? Well, luckily, I I came out of the city council 12 years and six of it as the president of the city council. So I have a lot of respect for legislators, for the legislative process. I defer um, knowing that I always say a council member knows better than a mayor what's going on in her district. A, city, uh, a neighborhood council member knows better than the council member, and somebody who lives on that block knows better than the neighborhood council member. So I always really defer down to that street level. But I also, if there's big things, citywide things, an affordable housing project that somebody opposes, I'm not going to defer to the council and say, oh, I'm just the mayor, I can't do anything about it. So I will push, I will prod, and I will use my executive powers to sometimes do things that go around the council. That said, I think I've gotten along better with this council than any mayor probably in LA history. Usually, you look at old news clips, there's all this drama back and forth between council. I've vetoed, I think, two things. Once when I didn't feel one went far enough for racial justice um, after George Floyd was murdered and we reallocated some monies in the budget. And another time when there looked like there was corruption going on with land use, which proved true with the council member. This was in Council yeah. District 14. But I've never had to veto anything, and 95 to 100% of my budget that I've put forward for them, they've approved. So it's been because we work together ahead of time. So I work closely. I check in on them. I lift them up. And it always frustrates me when I see uh, elected officials who are mean to other elected officials. We've seen this in the cruelest way recently. Yes. It's like pay it forward. Lead with love. Give people credit. Um, I've watched people and executive leaders who are like, I'm not going to give anybody credit. I did this all. That's just not the truth. And it's free to give people some love and go free to give some people some credit and it comes back to you. Yeah, because you pitched in a recent interview uh, expanding the council to 25 yeah. members. Uh, pitch me that. Why, sure. why would you do that? You know, we have the largest city council districts in the country, meaning there's more people packed into a single district than any other city. It's larger than Santa Monica or, or oh, Boulder yeah. City council, or Beverly Hills. I mean, most, I don't know now the population, but probably it's, you know, it's larger than the majority of American cities is what a city council district is. So now it's about 250, 60,000 people. That's huge. And while you get 20 people, 10 usually at City Hall, 10 out in the field to serve that district, that's nowhere near enough for Angelinos to really feel and get the services they need. So I think if we had at least 25, as long as we didn't cut their budgets, and this is controversial, most people would say, well, don't, don't pay them one cent more. But the point is those 10 people in each office, so do the 10 times... 15 council districts. There's 150 people who take in all the calls for 4 million people. I'd like to see that be maybe 250 people. I think you'd have a better shot of getting your call answer, your pothole paved quicker, your park repaired, whatever it is that you need. Really, these are critical people. Um, And so I think it would also disperse power a little bit more. So some of the abuse that we saw recently of power couldn't be as easily concentrated in a few hands. And ideally, you might get a little bit more racial representation for those voters who need that identification with their uh, leaders. Exactly. And to me, it's not that, you know, too often we're like, we need to make and preserve a black district, a Latino district, create maybe an Asian American Pacific Islander district. 
What we've seen, and Karen Bass is a great example of this, who's incoming as mayor, she's always represented a non-black majority district. So, you know, you can have black folk represent non-black folk, you can have Latinos representing, um, you know, majority white districts, you can have Asian Americans like there are right now on the council who represent areas that are not majority Asian American. I think the more seats, this just being LA, the more people will run, and the more shot you'll have to have more representation, more women, more communities of color, um, and that's a good thing. When there's just a few, look at the, the Board of Supervisors, there's one Latina there right now in a, in a county that's half Latino. But if there were 10 supervisors, you'd have a much better shot of getting more Latinos and, quite frankly, more of everybody. Uh, so we touched on the relationship between different departments in, uh, within the city uh, mm -hmm. and the city council and the mayor's office. Yeah. Um, but uh, Los Angeles municipal boundaries are insane for an outside observer. Yes. It's the legacy of the water wars. Yeah. And uh, it, it strikes me that if I had a magic pen, I'd have to redraw that around almost the entire metropolitan area mm -hmm. and eliminate the power that uh, Santa Monica and Beverly Hills and mm -hmm. Culver City have. Uh, would, you, would you try to do that? Has that been suggested? Yeah, you know, it's funny. If you were that alien looking at, okay, we have a, really a city of 19 million. Yeah. We cut into five counties. The biggest county is 10 million. Let's cut that horizontally into 88 different cities and a bunch of unincorporated areas. The county is essentially the city. And then vertically, we're like, and when it comes to what government should do, let's chop that up into 20-something pieces. So the county is in charge of social services, sometimes public safety in unincorporated areas, but the health care, the mental health care, the public health, um, welfare, uh, child welfare, Cities are responsible for municipal services, public works, um, you know, uh, police departments, fire departments. But then we're going to have separate school district government, separate community college government. We're going to even have a different government for mosquitoes and rats called uh, the vector control, uh, a water district, an air quality district. It makes no sense because when you solve human problems, think about it. A kid breathes the air, waits for the bus in the morning, goes to a school, maybe goes to a park afterwards, like it's touching five different governments like just by being herself. And we're not approaching the needs of that child who might be thinking about dropping out of school or having suicidal ideation or somebody who's unhoused who needs to be touched by probably four or five levels of government. So if we had a coterminous city, yeah, but we're not going to get that, that would be ideal. But maybe LA City should be a county like San Francisco is too. So that we could have, for instance, addressing something like homelessness, all the county powers and city powers, the, the human services and the physical services all together. Because I, I imagine there's some chafing trying. between those different groups and the city groups. Uh, what is working with them like? Have you ever, can you come up with any examples of that uh, falling apart? Yeah, well, you know, I, I've worked really hard to do the opposite. Everybody loves to hate the LA city mayor, right? If you're an elected supervisor or mayor of any other town, you're like, why is this guy and the future, this gal getting 90% of the headlines and only 40% of the population. And knowing that, and having been a city council president, I know so much of power is giving up power and giving credit and leading kind of with sharing. So I convened all 87 and myself, 88 mayors of LA County every quarter for nine and a half years, except during the pandemic a couple times. It was like a revolution. It was a radical new move. The, the mayor of South El Monte and the mayor of Lancaster and the mayor of you know Long Beach and uh, were like, wait a second, you want to talk to us and listen to us. And I'm like, yeah, better than that, we're gonna meet in your city the next time in three months. And so we talked about earthquake safety and the Olympics and homelessness and um, you know, 
regional things that we all had to get together on. And so when I went to the voters, for instance, for Measure M to build out our fantasy of a rail system and a transit system, I already had these relationships, this trust, and we had a coalition. If I had been the mayor of LA, because LA City did try to lead that two years before I became mayor and it failed with Measure uh, R, I think it was, that didn't get two thirds vote because people were like, oh, this is LA City just stealing our money from South counties, cities, from North County cities. Um, and I also have walked up the hill because City Hall is, sits lower than the Hall of Administration, which is where our county supervisors are, and went up and met with them regularly. They're like, no mayor ever actually came to our offices. And I said, well, why not? We served together on Metro. We worked together in emergencies like the pandemic. So I could give you some examples pr probably in the past, and even some that I went through where this rubbed up against each other, but I think our record is really changing that culture of more how we came together than how we came apart. Because there seems to be some inequity in those relationships and some imbalance of power between the richer areas which have their own yeah. jurisdictions and LA which manages so much. Yeah. And what would you say, you know, when, when homelessness with, the, with this major issue, yeah. how has that been with this new coalition? Have you been able to um, work together to, you know, start pushing the problem out? It's, it's getting better, but for a long time it, it's always, you know, the city under Tom Bradley sued the county and the county sued the city saying, Homelessness is your responsibility because the county looks in and says, well, it's your city. You clean it up. You make it happen. And the city says, well, wait a second. I don't have a mental health department. I don't get most of the housing dollars. I don't have welfare. I don't have child welfare. All the things that drive people into homelessness it might be a kid emancipating from foster care. It might be a veteran coming home from war. It might be a woman who was sexually or, or domestically a victim of violence. Um, you know, the city doesn't really have those tools. I ran to this fire and I said, I'm going to be a mayor who accepts responsibility for homelessness. It uh, seems like most of the major initiatives on zoning have come from the state level. Um, SB 827 and 50 a few years ago, they didn't pass. Yeah. They were on raising uh, density in near transit centers. Mm -hmm. um, and if I remember right, you opposed them. I did not. My council did. Okay. I'm the only one who was for them. There's one council member from Council District 1, Gil Cedillo, actually, was also for uh, we actually have done a lot of the zoning on our own, and there's been some state efforts, especially because there aren't cities like L.A. that are moving as aggressively. We are the only city in this last decade. When I became mayor, we've tripled the pace of housing. So we're doing about 7,000 units of housing a year. Our peak was about 23,000 just before the pandemic, and we're almost there again. So tripled that pace. But the local voters passed Measure JJJ, which allowed the mayor to upzone along transit corridors I, without going to the council. And when they, the planning uh, department came to me saying, this is how tall we want to be able to build along transit corridors where we're investing billions of dollars like Crenshaw Line, think the Expo Line, all these new lines. Um, I said, you're not giving me tall enough. And I pushed them to go even higher. And today, 50% of all our new housing is along those transit corridors with this great addition, which is we said, you can only go tall if you build on your own dime, low and very low and extremely low income housing. So without a single dollar of subsidy, we've more than doubled the amount of affordable housing that's being built without a taxpayer dollar in exchange for saying to a developer, you want to go higher? Fine. You need to put people who are on the knife's edge or already homeless into these uh, housing things too. And then most recently, the change at state law to go from one home on a piece of property to splitting that in half and doing two on each, so to four, I came out very strongly for campaign SB four. 5 and 10, yeah, or yeah. 9 and 10, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm really glad that they've passed. I think that's a game changer. The other thing that we did here locally was legalize accessory dwelling units under my administration. Those are used to, the artists formerly known as granny flats. 
Um, and almost 25% of our new housing is just people building something in their backyard. Everybody said, the sky's gonna fall, our neighborhood's gonna fall apart. It's quite the opposite. People have a little bit more money to live off of. There's more housing there. We do actually all the design for free if you take somebody who is formerly homeless and put them in that housing. So um, we've been very aggressive in this administration. Though you're right, in, in the council there was a lot of nimbyism saying no way. And those are community groups. And by that I mean I think a small minority now of people who are still the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard, but they control a lot of these community groups saying, don't densify, the neighborhood's gonna fall apart. My, my whole point is we already densified. Go to South Los Angeles, walk with me in Central Los Angeles. You think that's a single family home? It's cut in four pieces and there's four families living in it. We never built out any infrastructure. Either we build for our density or not, not we have the density or not. What's the difference between YIMBYs and NIMBYs? Well, NIMBYs are not in my backyard. YIMBYs say yes in my backyard and I think Look, NIMBYism probably came from, if I'm being generous, some place where there was a lot of crappy planning, spot zoning, where uh, people in the 70s and 80s were just throwing up tall things next to single-family homes. But it became a movement that, that is the biggest problem in Los Angeles that said basically everywhere in all neighborhoods, you can't build up. And so we felt 30 years behind on our housing. That's why we have our homeless problem. That's why we have our housing Because problem. almost 80% of LA is still zoned for single families. Exactly. And that's sort of what we've changed both at the state level and in uh, local levels. And that's what's coming. But, but also along those areas, the other 20%, we, we really upzoned a lot. And I think the proof's in the pudding. The numbers are there. When people say, well, there's still homeless people on the streets, I say, it took us 30 years to get there. If I do my job right as mayor, I'm setting the table for the next decade. Like and I want to get housing. back to your hobby horse because half the battle is just uh, creating new vacancies and yep. lowering the market value, but yep. the other half of the battle is just making free housing uh, to get people off the street and Absolutely. into a place where you can invest in them. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk about yeah. your complaints here? M basically, what <laughs> I was going to bring up was, you know, with the state, you know, spending twelve billion dollars over two over two years, yeah. $6 billion a year basically. How has that process been for you, um, you know, working with the state mm -hmm. to get funding for homeless projects to, you know, solve this issue? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people see, you know, $6 billion a year and they're like, okay, well, when is this gonna, when is this gonna be right. finished? Right. You know, because that's a lot of money, it's a lot of taxpaying dollars. So what is your process yeah, What are the, the obstacles? State? So um, at times the state and certainly under this governor has been awesome. He's been a, former mayor. He's dealt with homelessness. For instance, I talked to him about why can't we just buy existing apartment buildings or motels that are run down. And that became Project Home Key. And we've had dozens now. I think we'll almost have three dozen projects where we buy right away. Sometimes they need a lot of renovation, but sometimes you can put people in them right away. And it's been a really historic, fast and impactful way to get people off the street. Um, but let's be clear, we spend $5 per capita for every $1 per capita that the state pays on homelessness. Mm -hmm. And when I started, we were $10 million in our city budget on homelessness. I'm leaving with a budget of more than 1.2 billion a year. Part of that is passing HHH with the voters, but part of that is us just hustling and taking every extra penny dollar and putting it into housing, shelter, outreach teams. We had a dozen people when I started for 40,000 homeless individuals. Now we're in the hundreds of outreach uh, workers. So I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, there's all this money. It's, I still see people in tents. It must be broken. Throw it out. And I'm like, that's like saying we've never had a car or a street. We finally built the car. We've paved the street. We're starting to go down it. And you want to blow that car up? Yeah. No. Accelerate. And the passage of ULA, which I campaigned very strong for, the United to House LA, will be a game changer 
on top of HHH, which you're seeing all those HHH projects come online. For instance, the end of this year, between now and we're talking, and the end of the year, there's more than 25 projects that are going to be completed. There used to be four a year. There's going to be 25 in a month and a half. So you're really seeing it crest at the right time, and ULA will give us up to a billion dollars a year to spend on, by the way, not having to build anything sometimes, rental assistance before somebody becomes homeless is the cheapest, best way to stop homelessness. Because we've actually housed, let's see, 121,000 people since I've been mayor. There's only 40,000 homeless, but it's that so many new people become homeless. You know, so the problem really, we have to stop that. And then the rest of the money can go towards building more, uh, buying the existing that's about to become market rate that has been affordable housing. People forget, you might build 1,000 units, but 1,000 units go from affordable to market rate, and you're just still netting zero. And then there'll be a whole bunch in between for things like eviction defense and some other things to keep people from becoming homeless in the first place. So what would you say to the people who just say, why don't you just go build, build the... Um the housing, you know, yeah. essentially like these, you could build these very dense high rises because mm -hmm. a lot of people, again, they see that $6 billion. They say, you know, you have all this land all over the state. You know, why don't, why doesn't anyone just build the housing just outright? Yeah. You've talked a lot about the successful projects, yeah. but can you name a project that's failed? Yeah. Well, I don't know that there's any of the projects that have opened don't fail in the sense that I've met the people who move in there. They're real people and they have services and housing together and that's not cheap, mm -hmm. but it's a lot cheaper than 20 years more on the streets or people dying. Um, you know, oftentimes people point to one unit of housing that cost $800,000. Well, sure, you're cherry picking the one development that was, there isn't a lot of land in LA. You're right in the state, but it's very tough to find land. It's expensive. It's probably polluted or on a hillside. And by the way, when you average how much it costs, these buildings all usually have services in them, uh, spaces for uh, therapists, psychiatrists, uh, clinicians, for the mental health there might be childcare in it. And like a normal building doesn't get that factored into the price of a unit. And people forget we're only putting about 115,000 into it and it leverages all the rest of that money. So who cares if it cost 800,000? That money was gonna go another state, another part of the state if we didn't build that here in LA. So, um, I mean, I, I think the failure is that we still have too many impediments to getting it done quickly. But I'm very proud too that for instance, CEQA, our state's environmental law, anything that's a homeless housing now is exempted from that. So you don't have to get sued. You don't have to wait a year and a half. We've uh, been able to reduce by six months the amount of time it just gets for the permits to build. But I do think that, you know, I look at some folks who are doing it in the privately financed space and they're still doing it at about half the price. Now, do they pay their workers as much? Do they, you know, where do they get their funding from? You know, there's some legitimate questions that people bring up, um, but you want to build it right and remember that unit, whether it costs 250000 or 800000 will recycle many times. That's not for one person for the rest of their life. The idea is they get in there, they stabilize their lives, and for many of them, they'll become productive enough citizens. They get jobs, they, they go into the normal marketplace like us, they turn their lives around, and that recycles. So what we're building for today isn't just like, oh, there's only one unit this year. That Every year you get to count that again it, as it turns over and somebody new comes in. Uh, you mentioned impediments. What are those uh, impediments that you had in mind? Well, I think, you know, right now, people don't understand this. To build something like what we're talking about, an affordable housing unit um, that is for somebody who's homeless or on the verge of homelessness, you just have to get five different funding sources. You got to get a bank. You got to get state funds. You got to get 
uh, federal tax credits that go that, that the seems state. insane. Why was that? Made? And they're all in different. Well, because there was never one program. We need to cut through all the BS. We need a right to housing in this country, and we need federal government to have a single source of funding this that aligns the calendar. So if the state or the or the local jurisdictions put in money, it happens one day where somebody wanting to build something knows that they have all the funding in place instead of waiting a year and a half to collect. It's like, I would say it's like a sandwich. You're collecting the lettuce, you're collecting, connecting, collecting the tomato, you're trying to get the meat in there, the cheese in there. I mean, all you have is the, the bread and you're waiting. And that time costs a lot of money and it also means that when you have a crisis, it doesn't move as quickly. I've pushed our president and the only thing when I became co-chair of his campaign that I asked when he said, what, what's important to you? I said, push to make housing a human right in this country. Think about this. That sounds like a public housing uh, development uh, that competes with the It can the be vouchers. Market. It can be vouchers. And I think that's the quickest way to do it. Think about it this way, like food. We don't, we don't have the, the federal government growing the food. We have food stamps. And there's no limit to how many people get food stamps. If you qualify and you're poor enough, we say in this country you shouldn't go hungry. Think about it for health care. If you're poor enough in this country, you have no health care. Medicaid, which we call Medi-Cal in California, you get it. No limit to how many people. But housing, which we call housing choice vouchers, also known as Section 8, one out of eight people in L.A., and you got to wait years, will get one, which means seven out of eight people who need housing don't get it. And it would be much cheaper. Make that, that coupon, that voucher, worth as much as this market demands. So you can't take Topeka, Kansas rates. It should be Los Angeles rates because our housing is more expensive. And if you empowered people with that, we could actually get everybody off the streets and we could keep everybody off the streets. I could talk all day about housing, Me but too. you got more. Come back and just do a housing podcast. <laughs> with, uh, with recent, you know, the recent rises in crime, mm -hmm. we've seen violent crime rise, nonviolent crime rise. Mm -hmm. Do you think a lot of these progressive criminal reform policies have led to the rise in crime or would you say it's coming from a different area? People want really easy narratives and they want you to pick a side when it comes to crime. You're either soft on crime and you're causing the crime to go up or you're hard on crime and you're taking people of color and throwing them warehousing them away. I think you have to be pretty nuanced. I, I am a, a, a big proponent of that we warehouse people for way too long. It was too expensive. It was racist. It was wrong. But the money we were promised when we were going to deinstitutionalize people that would go into programs to catch them if they have mental health or substance abuse issues, they've never had job training, I haven't seen materialize. So there's kind of both sides are right to an extent. I don't think the answer is to lock people up again. The answer is to truly have a criminal justice system, in which there are consequences for some repeat offenders. Right now, I think it, it is too loose out there that literally we're rearresting the same person who five times in a row within like three weeks yeah. is breaking into that same car. Like that person does need to be locked up until we figure out what. Not 20 years locked up, but locked up right now and have some consequence. Fox uh, News has pointed to some high profile incidences right, of people right. doing But they go too far. On the flip side, um, if we don't actually have programs, I'll give you an example of what we did with Caltrans. We took people coming out of the criminal justice system and hired them state jobs through the, the mayor's office of reentry to help clean up our freeways, not like free labor, slave labor, or underpaid labor, but actual jobs with pensions and health care. The recidivism rate of somebody coming out of state prison was close to 75% in California that they'd go back. With this program and people who were hired, and we didn't cherry pick them, it's 2%. So, you know, it seems to be smart. It's cleaning up our freeways, like those sorts of programs. And we're doing a lot of that targeted local hire too. We've had, a, and by the way, the other thing about Fox News is there's a huge jump in the coverage of crime. And don't get me wrong, if you're the victim of crime, that's real and that's the only statistic you care about. But this was the safest decade in our city's history. 
We've gone up, part one crime has gone up 5% in the last three years, since before the pandemic to now 5%, but I think coverage has gone up maybe 100%. And we have a very capable police department, for instance, all the follow home robberies and the things that we hear about, that got knocked down to less than when, before the coverage started, but you never get the coverage saying, um, Success. Crime is dropping. Yeah. And by the way, the other things that we're doing to de-police, in other words, take the responsibilities away from police, like we have mental health vans now in the city of LA that respond through 911 to people experiencing psychosis and other things on our street. Instead of a cop or a firefighter picking them up, later releasing them because they don't have the expertise and repeating and rinse, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, we now have over 70% positive outcomes where county mental health workers, this is a good example of county and city working together, driven by a city paid driver and staying in our fire stations are able to respond, give people help, give them medication, and they actually have resolution to their mental health problem in a nonviolent way. So it's a, you know, I'm very proud, for instance, our police shootings went, the fatal police shootings went down 85% from when I started as mayor to just before the pandemic, we're waiting on the new numbers, but to the lowest 5% of any city in America per capita. And that was very conscious a policy. On the other hand, you can't have a society with no consequences, and you have to be surgical about how you do that and humane about how you do that, too. So would, Go ahead. <laughs> would you say um, recently uh, Justice LA, their, their push to you know, not build the new county jail, do you think that that's the st a step in the right direction for you know, pl uh, police and justice reform? Absolutely. I would just tell people this isn't cheap. It's right, and we must do it. But don't underfund it. Don't be a state government that says, hey, we, we aren't paying for these prisons anymore, but you're mostly pocketing the savings instead of giving it to local jurisdictions to truly have programs. I mean, our problem right now is somebody having a mental health problem or who's addicted to drugs. There's no place to take them even if they are willing. The wait is so long. Like We all say we hate seeing somebody naked on the streets. We hate seeing people go in the bathroom on the streets. We've seen violence on the street. We had somebody who uh, stabbed an eight-year-old boy in the Target here downtown and, and a visiting um, uh, flight attendant from Korean Air who was there, uh, and she was stabbed critically because of a mental health problem. If we were actually serious about, forget crime, but just humanity, we would say those people should have health, should have health care, should have mental health care, and should have a bed someplace. Right now, we don't have that from the state or the county. I mean, a couple more quick fun questions. Uh, firstly, do you get a thrill from talking a lot in interviews? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said today I was, we were celebrating a big grant, $35 million grant for South LA for um, uh, a, a coalition of environmental and community groups to green South LA from the state. You got that plug-in. There you go. I did. And they said, they said, you're a really good speaker. And I said, look, if, if I forced you to speak five times a day for 20 years straight, you'd be a good speaker too. I, I like communicating and I, I hate Sometimes I get really tired because um, it's an exhausting job. But I, I, like during the pandemic, I did 100 addresses from this room in here uh, to the people live, 6 o'clock English. Then we'd switch, switch to Spanish for another hour. Um, I think it's the main job. I mean, for, for uh, Mayor-elect Bass, uh, we talked this weekend. I said, you're communicator in chief. You have to explain the city. You have to inspire the city. You have to grieve with the city. And most importantly, you have to empower the city. I remember somebody telling me after my second address to the city during the pandemic, don't just tell people the news. They're feeling isolated, alone. They're losing loved ones. They're scared out of their minds. Tell them what they can do. And LA has no problem we can't overcome if four million people will act. 
but there is no problem that will ever be solved from City Hall if people think the mayor by herself or himself is going to knock it out. I did have one last question. So, you know, obviously you're coming to an end of, you know, your uh, candidacy as mayor. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your plans for the future? Are you going to give us a sneak peek on what you're you're trying to go to? I'm going to play a lot more music, a lot more jazz piano. I'm going to spend a lot more time with my daughter and my wife. Hopefully going to do some travel. I'm excited. I've been nominated to be ambassador to India and feeling optimistic about that. So I may be gone for a couple years from L.A., um, in a country that I, I love and spent time in when I was younger. Um, and I don't know, I think the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is reintroducing myself to myself. I think I've read one novel or two novels as I've been mayor. That was you know. my other question was, <laughs> what, what do you, books do you recommend? And we, we live in the city of entertainment, so you know, I, what, what I movies and TV have you seen reports. recently? Uh, there's, a, there's a great new uh, book uh, called My Nemesis coming out from Charmaine Craig that I read an advanced copy of. Uh, she's a great friend. It's a great book coming out in February. She lives here in, in West Adams. Uh, it's going to be an awesome book. Um, there's a good book called If Mayors Ruled the World, and it sounds self-serving, but I'm saying this on the way out. I think that local government is actually where change continues to happen. Uh, we just had the COP in Egypt, you know, the, the environmental conference. There's one country in the world on track for their Paris promises. The top 100 cities of the world, three-quarters of us are ahead of schedule. So, I mean, I would get people inspired to see that there's still a lot that local, as, as, as tough as this has been for LA between a pandemic, the racism that came out of City Hall this last two months, uh, the local level is where global things happen. But I, I don't know, I, I, love, I, I love poetry. Um, I'll be going back to reading a lot of poetry um, and doing some writing maybe as well. No I presidential decided, run? Why would you wish that on a friend? <laughs> <laughs> I never shut any doors, but I also think so many people think politicians just sit behind the scenes saying, how can I get more and more power and what's next? For me, I've never run for something unless I feel I can do something and I've always been the last to declare because it has to be real. And if this is the last thing I ever run for, I will die happy in terms of my elected public service. And if there's something else that's coming, it has to be compelling because of the sacrifices. You know, we didn't get into this, but it's a tough moment to serve. I mean, people dehumanize you. In good ways, they think you're the most amazing thing. And I'm like, trust me, talk to my wife. I didn't do the dishes last <laughs> night. Like, I'm a human being. Mayors are people too. But they also dehumanize you negatively. And like, you're a piece of You don't know who you, you, this, that. And these are people who have never spent a moment with you as a human being. And so I would say to our next mayor, support her. Whether you voted for her or not, know she's a human being who loves the city. Both of them, you know, Bass people are like, I hate Caruso. Caruso people, I hate Bass. They both love this city. Trust me, if they put themselves forward to run this city and to go through the life that is this job, it is a tough one. And don't let 1% or 2%, no matter where they are on the spectrum ideologically, 1% or 2% be so loud and so narcissistic that they drown out the 98 99% that do want to compromise, that do want to move things forward, and that are okay talking to each other civilly. I can kind of conclude with this. We've lost the commons. There's not a lot of common decency anymore. We've forgotten about common ground, and we have to fight for the common good. And I've been playing with that for the last couple of weeks in my head. Like, at the end of the day, we live in a democracy. You don't get 100% of what you want. But we live in LA, which spoke very clearly about who they wanted for mayor, the direction they want the city to go. It doesn't happen overnight, so stay impatient. But be patient and put in the time between elections. And like I said, there's nothing in LA that can't stop us. I think our best years are still ahead. 
Well, thank you, you again much. for taking time out of your day to sit with us. And no thank way. you to all the people listening and watching. And we'll see you guys next time.